Hello and welcome to Perhaps It's You, an unofficial fan rewatch podcast of the classic television series Unsolved Mysteries. If you're following along at home, we're on season one, episode eight of the original Robert Stack episodes. I'm Samantha and I'm here with my co-host Liz. How's it going, Liz? Good. How are you, Samantha? Great. Hello, five listeners. How are you? How many mysteries have you solved this week? We let us know. I hope it's a lot. I hope I'm assuming that our listeners are out there just being super sleuths and solving all kinds of mysteries. I did see someone on Twitter who was not affiliated with the show in any way, but let's just assume they're a listener saying that their hobby was to watch Unsolved Mysteries and then try to find the people on Facebook. <laughs> yes, that's a great idea. <laughs> I know, which actually had not occurred to me somehow. No, not even once. And it, I mean, it's slightly stalkery, I guess, but... I want to talk to that person. If you are listening, <laughs> I want to hear how many people you've tracked down. Yeah. We won't reveal your identity. No. We'll, on the show. We won't tell the cops. We'll plead, <laughs> we'll plead the fifth when this inevitably goes to trial. <laughs> Um, do you have any updates or how was your week? What should we? Oh, my week was exhausting. Yeah, it was a long week. If you follow us on Instagram, you know that we went to the My Favorite Murder live show. Liz went to both nights. They were here. Karen and Georgia from My Favorite Murder podcast were here on Wednesday and Thursday. I don't know why I thought that that was a good idea. I just moved my weekend to like the middle of the week. <laughs> One night was I'm exhausting not, enough for me. I'm not young enough to do that. We had a great like meetup with a bunch of our true crime f- friends beforehand, which was fun, but of course a little tiring. It was a little bit of a whirlwind. Organizing it was a little exhausting, to say the least. A lot exhausting. We're not event planners, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> We're also not extroverts, no. so that like really, I spent all of Friday just like decompressing. And at the very end of it, people. I had VIP tickets, so I got to meet Karen and Georgia, which was wonderful. But by that point, I was so wiped out. I was not ready to meet like you two of what? my idols. <laughs> I was like, Hello? I stammered something about the meetup. I didn't even mention this podcast, which I intended to do. I was like, uh, uh, hi. We did sell Rafa tickets to benefit and the backlog so that was cool yeah if you listen to my favorite murder you know that that's sort of their charity of choice a lot of times is and the back backlog which is an organization that puts resources into testing untested rape kits if you want to be depressed go to their website and look up your state <laughs> see yeah. how many untested rape there's kits. more than three thousand untested rape kits in minnesota which is actually not that much not that bad which is compared to some states really i looked up texas which granted is a bigger state than us, very but they have eighteen thousand untested rape kits and that's just the ones that are reported some states also i looked up i just picked some random ones arkansas was at the top of the list because they're alphabetical order they didn't even have any listed because apparently no one knows how many there are in arkansas so my eyes just got really wide and scared isn't that crazy it's crazy that there's any untested rape kits it's crazy that we have to sell raffle tickets to get them really crazy that we have to sell raffle tickets to get rape kits tested that's not right no it's not right to the point where some people like sort of didn't believe that was a thing because it's, it's like, so depressing that you kind of don't, don't want to accept that that is a reality of our yeah, world. Yeah, absolutely. In the age of DNA testing and technology, it's crazy to think that there's rape kids just languishing in the basement of police stations all across the country. And I realize there are some cases where the identity of the dude, I'm <laughs> just, I don't know what the, the, where identity is not in question, consent sure. is in question. So there are some cases where I guess you don't really need to test it, but... I wonder if those are in the count. I wonder if... Yeah, I don't know. But I also know, like, from talking to people that there are definitely instances where people wanted their rape kit tested and it either didn't happen or it took years, literally, 
years. Insane. Which now I'm just gonna cry because it's so depressing. <laughs> yeah. So that's the start of our show. <laughs> it's lots of depressing <laughs> shit. And we're gonna start off this episode with some more. But we raised five hundred and sixty-six dollars at our event. People gave so generously. Yeah, I people even were believe it. really nice. They were just throwing twenties at us. Like, I mean, it is a really good cause, but I understand that you know times are tight. So thank you to everyone. That so I'm sure some of you who went to the event are listening. We appreciate it so much, and your money is going to a good cause. So yeah. That was our week. It was pretty tiring. I'm glad it's the I weekend. I slept really late on Friday. and I took several naps between then and now. Perfect. I'm glad October's kind of winding down because it's been a busy <laughs> month. I can't handle it. We're At the beginning of October, we were like, why isn't it always October? There's so many things. That, and I'm like, I can't. Flash forward to the end of October. I'm we're like, too this, old for this. this I don't have sucks. this much energy. Also, the My Favorite Murder Show was on... The University of Minnesota campus. Mm-hmm. So we had to walk by all of these young, shiny, bright <laughs> college students. Oh my God. I literally saw a guy on a skateboard carrying a box of beer in each hand, which is the <laughs> most... I didn't see anything that college while I was in college. That's, no, that's dinky town for you. That is how everyone is. And I was just like, I was never this young, ever. <laughs> and I don't I don't Neither know I. where they get their energy from. And I, th- their eyes were so full of hope. And I just wanted to go up to them and crush every one of their dreams <laughs> by saying, by perhaps going up and saying, hey, did you know that there's 3,000 untested rape kits in the state of Minnesota and that that's not even that bad? Which, yeah, anyway. <laughs> Liz, the crusher of dreams. I, I totally am. I used to judge high school speech tournaments. Okay. And, oh, those kids are so full of promise and idealism and I kind of... I mean, I lo- they were all huge dorks, and none of their suits fit right, and that's kind of adorable, right? They're all wearing, like, a suit they got for their uncle's wedding three summers ago, and they've gone <laughs> through a couple of growth spurts, so their arm is just, like, sticking out from the... I mean, that's adorable, that's but really then cute. they're also like, yeah, once I get into this college, and then I go to this grad school, and it's like, no, dude, none of that stuff's going to happen like you think it's going <laughs> to happen. I'm sorry. I realize that you're the absolute best at speech now, but... It's all downhill from here, really. It's all downhill until you start an Unsolved Mysteries (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Then you've really made it. Then, well, yeah. Then the dreams just come rolling in. (laughs) Do you have any updates? Oh, do I? Whoa. First minor update. I tweeted at the Church of Satan to ask if agreeing (laughs) with the 11 rules of the earth meant that we were Satanists. What did they say? Did they respond? They did. They said maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So we're no closer to the truth. Nope. Some other random person suggested that I read the Satanic Bible and see if I agreed with it. And that that that, sounds like a lot of work. That might mean I was a Satanist, but that that was up to me. I like that the Satanists were so chill about this. Yeah. They're not knocking at your door trying to evangelize you into Satanism. Maybe you are. Look into it or not. It's up to you. That sounds oh, really nice. Thanks, Satanists. I also asked, just out of my own curiosity, if the Satanists believed that we were currently in the end times, because I keep, ever since the election, I've been referring to us living in the apocalypse. I It just feels that way to me, personally. I tell people at least once a day that this is the end. I mean, half it's, the country's on fire. There's the threat of us all being underwater in a hurricane. There's the threat of Yellowstone blowing up and just killing us all. Yeah, yeah. There might be a nuclear war. I mean... The Great Barrier Reef is all dead. The glaciers are <laughs> melting. Polar I, bears are dying. Yeah, it, it seems that way to it me. It seems like the end. The Church of Satan said no. 
that they don't believe we're in the end times. That's because really optimistic. Humanity has already survived all of these various disasters. And that honestly gave me hope. So thanks. Thanks, Church of Satan. Yeah, thank you. That's a really <laughs> optimistic view of the world. We yeah. should really, maybe we should just get it over with and become Satan. I, I mean, I, yes, I mean. Do you have to read the Satanic Bible, though? I got so many seem, other things on my Goodreads list. They seem pretty chill, okay. so probably not. We can get to it when we get to it. Yeah, I mean, I think you just sort of start saying you're a Satanist, and then your family members are shake their heads and are extremely disappointed in you. I think that's... <laughs> Is that how it works? I, I assume. Okay. But I have a second more important, more exciting update. Okay. Which comes from Megan, our resident librarian from the research department. She had. Are we just going to start calling her our research assistant? Yes. Why not? Okay. She gets paid zero dollars. <laughs> Thanks for accepting the position, Megan. She let me know that in regards to the haunted as fuck General Wayne Inn, mm-hmm. that there is a forensic file <gasps> about the most recent murder at the General Wayne Inn. Whoa. And I went, how did I forget that? Oh, my God. Did you watch it? I did. All right. So we have to guess what this episode is called. Haunted as fuck General Wayne Inn. <laughs> That's it what is, I call it. It's called Murder on the Menu. <laughs> It's it even better. It's even better. So if you have Netflix, this is in Collection 2, Episode 24. It's called Murder on the Menu. And actually, I even noted that even Forensic Files says the General Wayne is haunted. I have never seen... Wow. I cannot remember Forensic Files ever saying something was haunted. It's well, not no, that because kind of, it's all about science. Yeah, it's not a paranormal prove. show, but they were like, yeah, this place is probably haunted. Whoa. Fascinating. So the murder that we are talking about it relates to the death of Chef... Jim Webb, who took over the General Wayne Inn in 1995. Uh, the plan was, it had sort of fallen on hard times. <laughs> if you've watched the uh, Unsolved Mysteries about it, you go, yeah, the place doesn't look so great. So <laughs> We could tell. We could tell. They took it over in 95. They were going to restore it to its former glory of when Edgar Allan Poe was writing The Raven there, right? They had, they had grand plans. Mm-hmm. Well, two days after Christmas in 1996, the employees opened up. They went... Upstairs to the third floor office and found Jim Webb, Jim Webb, 31 years old, was dead on the floor. Mm. Uh, he had been dead for at least the night. There was a huge knot in his head, forehead. So they originally thought he had, like, fell and hit his head or hit his head on the desk. Okay. That was actually a bullet wound from the back of his head had come forward oh. and made a, like... So the bullet didn't come out the front of his head? Yeah. It just made a bump? Yes. Oh, that's horrifying. Yes. Well, that I'm not just telling you that to gross you out. That actually comes into play. Well, later. I'm not easily grossed out. But, but <laughs> listeners, <laughs> listeners. Oh, okay, you're talking to them. <laughs> I got it. Okay, so he had a he had a he was shot. I guess you call that execution style in the back of his head. He was still wearing a gold chain. He had hundreds of dollars in his wallet. So uh, robbery was not considered a motive. He was known as difficult to work with. He was okay. considered very demanding. He sort of expected perfection. He had let some people go recently. So they were originally looking at uh, disgruntled employees. The police cleverly kept the fact that he died from a gunshot to themselves because the people who found the body didn't know that he had been shot. Oh, that's smart. And so they didn't reveal that piece of information. They just revealed that he was dead and they were looking into it. So they were hoping that the killer would slip up and reveal they knew he had been shot. Mm, very clever. Right. They uh, noticed that no one would be able to sneak up the stairs to shoot Jim Webb because the place was 
so dilapidated that the stairs were super creaky. Okay. So they took that to mean that he knew his killer, okay, which turned sense. out to be true. Or that it was a ghost. Or that it was a ghost. Was that one of their theories? They didn't mention it, but I can only assume yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why did they bring up that it was haunted? Unless it could have been a ghost. Jim Webb's wife was interviewed on Friends of Files, and she did say that she always thought the place was evil. So sure, sure. make of that what you will. His business partner, Guy Salio, had a 650 life insurance policy on Jim Webb. They each had one on each other because they were in business together. But Guy Salio was not really the best worker, as it turned out. He was (laughs) using the inn more to, like, party and hit on waitresses while Jim was doing all the work. Guy had also recently bought a pistol three weeks before Jim's murder, but when they tested it, it was not the same pistol. Salio's alibi was that he was with his girlfriend, she was the assistant chef, um, and she passed a lie detector test. But then two months later, she was found dead. That was the suicide, right? Yeah, she had a gunshot wound to her head with her father's service revolver. Um, I had thought there was more time in between the death and the suicide. I guess they did fall into two separate years, but they were only two months apart. Oh, okay. So I was a little incorrect when I was talking about that last time. Um, also, a 25 caliber bullet was found in the parking lot across the street from the General Wayne Inn by a dumpster. So the police found the garbage truck that had entered, that had, the dumpster had been emptied into and sorted through 12 tons of trash. Oh my God. And said they smelled the worst smells of their life, as you must imagine, but mm-hmm. they didn't find anything. Well, that's too bad. That's <laughs> too bad for them. I just thought I would mention that because a lot of times we're talking about cops not doing their due diligence. There's a time where they were really trying to solve this murder. They sort through 12 tons they of went through trash. <laughs> 12 tons of trash. The victim's wife, Robin Webb, after she's come out of her grief ever so slightly, remembers that she had a sort of weird exchange with the business partner right after he was found dead, where he came up to her to condole her by saying, who would want to shoot Jim? Well, first of all, uh, you, guy. But also, no one knew he had been shot. Oh. The police kept that to themselves. So he shouldn't have known that. And then it came out that he owned a second handgun that was unregistered that he had showed several employees at the General Wayne Inn that had belonged to his uncle or father or something. Just go around showing your gun to your employees? Yeah, well, this guy was a tool. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they compared the ammo that he had to the bullet found in the scene, and it was similar, but that wasn't really enough. The case stalled for two years. Then an investigator was inspired by an episode of Forensic Files. Oh, I thought I, you were going to say Unsolved Mysteries. Which I fucking love when Forensic Files is like, because of us, this <laughs> mystery got... Like, Very this, self-congratulatory. Yes, I love it every time. He decided to examine the holster that Guy Salio had, and he sent it to a forensics lab. The forensics lab said, oh, two different guns have been stored in this holster, and one of them is the type of gun he's claiming he doesn't own, which was used in the murder, because both the logo and the safety switch had been imprinted into the leather holster. This is some serious forensics. I know. So Guy was arrested and charged, um, and it turned out that Jim had been planning to close the inn the first of the year. So he killed him the day after Christmas. Uh, He used Felicia as an alibi. They took separate cars when leaving the inn. 
And it looks like he parked across the street, returned to the inn, shot Jim, and then got in his car and drove where they were both going. So she was an alibi for him. It doesn't seem like she knew anything, but at some point realized that she had been used and took her own life. That's that's all speculation. She didn't leave a note, but they have no reason to think she was actually involved in the murder, and Guy was clearly a douchebag. So it seems like he tricked her, and she felt bad about it. Um, So five years after Jim Webb's death, Guy was found guilty. Uh, At some point, for some reason, he got a retrial. He got a new trial. I don't really understand why, but he was found guilty again, and he's used used up all his appeals. So that is the update. Wow. That actually was like a bonus mystery. Yeah. If you want to go watch that episode of Forensic Files, it is Can you say which episode it was again? Yeah, absolutely. Forensic Files is like organized weirdly. Different streaming services have different episodes. Sure. And they're not... Like, if you look it up, this is from season blah, 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 but that doesn't correlate to any streaming service. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're on Netflix, it's Collection 2, Episode 24. It's called Because They Were Chefs, Murder (laughs) on the Menu. So clever. Really tacky. That was great. So that is... I'm so happy that our research assistant told us (laughs) that... uh, That I forgot about an episode of Forensic Files, a thing that I thought would never happen. Well, there's so many of them. How yeah, they keep, do. How could you keep them all straight? All blurred together. And since it wasn't about the end being haunted, really, I didn't... Didn't register. I didn't remember that that was the same one. But Sure. There we go. That's, that's amazing. A, that's our bonus mystery update. That's great. You want to get into oh, this episode? Oh, let's get into episode eight. The first mystery is, is a missing person. Mm-hmm. So we're at Gothenburg, Nebraska. Robert Stack says that it has a strong sense of community. It is a town of 3,000 people and that when a neighbor is in trouble, it becomes everybody's business. I wrote down 3,000 inhabitants equals no one. Yeah, and yeah. That's a really small town. It's really small. And Gothenburg, based on Robert Stack's, Robert Stack's description, is a place I'd never want to live. No. So I don't want my neighbors. Sorry, They make Gothenburg. it sound like the, your neighbor's... Knowing your business is a good thing. Like, it's quaint and cute. No, I, and ha- oh, I hate that. I would, that would be the worst. Yeah, no, I can't handle even, it. Yeah, I don't even want to talk to my neighbors, let alone. <laughs> have them go, oh, hi, Samantha. I saw you bought oranges the other day. How were they? <laughs> no. So on December 11th, 1986, Christy Nickel vanished. Robert Stack calls her disappearance a controversy. And I think maybe tragedy would be a better way to describe it. But yeah, what's also controversial. We'll find out later that it's really not that controversial. But no, it's also it's not. Con- a controversy between the person who definitely did it yeah, and everyone say, else. It's also not that mysterious. It just hasn't been finalized or investigated. We'll get to it. Yeah. So here's what happened. Uh, they talk about Christie's past. So she married Mark Nichols when she was 19. They had a daughter and a son. Her friends and family said that Christie's life centered around her family. Her mother's interviewed, her mother's name is Connie, and she says that Christie was a good student, a nice-looking girl, and that everybody liked her, but also that she had a negative self-image. Connie tells Unsolved Mysteries that Christie never thought she did anything right until she had her children, and that she was so proud of her children. Who says that about someone that's missing, by the way? I don't know. The implication here, because... All I have to say is, thank God we are in a modern age of inter- the internet, because I don't can't even recall anyone who went missing nowadays, like attributed that they're missing to just them running away and yeah. starting a new life. It seems like all of these unsolved mysteries where there's a missing person, 
the first thing people assume is that they just maybe left. Maybe she went to Disneyland. We don't know. So what they're trying to establish here is that she loved her children so much that she would just never, she would never just leave. Yeah. There's also no reason I think she would leave. None at all. But they have, they need to prove that for some reason, because we can't just look them up yeah, on Facebook right. and see where they're at. <laughs> like, oh, there's Christy. Yeah. She just checked in at Arby's. <laughs> In another town over. <laughs> so they're trying to set up that she loved her children, that she would never just leave and never talk to them again. Christie's husband was the last person to see her alive, and many people in Gothenburg think he is responsible for her disappearance. Christie's husband is interviewed for the show. I'm not going to... Can I say this without sounding mean? He's like the dopiest man I've ever seen in my life. I was going to say that he... Maybe we're too paranoid about libel issues sometimes. <laughs> Maybe, but, but I just, all I want to say about this guy is that he is like dopey from fucking Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just thought you meant that as just an adjective, though, like literally Literally, he's, oh. he is dopey. Oh. I was going to say that he is not eligible for Most Valuable Mustache no. because he's a dirtbag. And if you want to infer... What I think of his guilt from that. We'll get to some things that can be proven about his behavior in a second. But he was interviewed for the show. (laughs) He says that in a small town, rumors basically take on a life of their own. He says that one rumor he's heard is that he chopped her up and buried her in the dump. Which he's kind of smiling when he's saying this. Gives me the heebie-jeebies. He's so monotone talking about the fact that his wife might be chopped up. He's so monotone the whole time, which I realize you might be nervous talking to the camera, and but it's still weird. It, it was a little off-putting, and I can see what people, I can see what people say because if you look up, you know, comments on the internet, people say basically that he did it and that his flat affect is proof, which it's not. But I can understand why people get a little squeaked out when sure. they watch his interview because it's strange. It's odd. The way he talks about her is odd. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> But apparently, as a result of these rumors, people, like, went to the dump and dug around. It wasn't clear if that was the police. I don't think it was. It, it was probably was me and Samantha. <laughs> we're like, we're going to figure this out. <laughs> it wasn't us. But I hope it was a couple of Keepers-esque women that took the law into their <laughs> own hands crime fans. to try to solve the mystery. No one, no one found anything. The camera cuts to Robert Stack walking through what looks like some kind of monument. It's like a corridor of white pillars, and it seems very out of place in this story about a quaint little town. Yeah, clearly he didn't go to that town. This is probably like some location they found in Los Angeles that just looks this is very strange. kind of official. They're like, walk around here. Anyway, Robert Stack says that Mark Nichols wants his wife to come home, but that until Christy returns to Gothenburg, he remains under a cloud of suspicion. He goes on to say that the police investigation of this case has raised some disturbing questions. Mm-hmm. So first of all, no one has seen or heard from Christy in 11 months. At that point, they brought in the Nebraska State Troopers. They interview After officer. 11 months? Yeah, it's pretty apparent to me that a minimal, if no, investigation was done until That's this awful. point. But this guy from the Nebraska State Troopers, Terry Ahrens, has a pretty nice mustache. I don't think he's going to be MVM. <laughs> At least he's not who I'm nominating for MVM, but there was a lot of mustaches in this episode. Yeah, I got actually overwhelmed. I don't think I have a nominee. I have I have two, but we'll, okay. get, we'll get to them in okay. your mystery. Officer Aarons says that it is starting to look like foul play, a foul play situation. And I wrote down no shit. <laughs> yeah. She's been I gone mean, for 11 months. No one's heard from her at all. Including so, her children and her mother, which they seemed pretty close. Yeah. 
And her children were young. Like, they were little kids at this point. And people were like, well, maybe she just left. So then they start talking about Christy and Mark's marital problems. Yeah. If that's what you want to call this. Christy had been seeing another man, which is something that they said once in this episode and never again. I actually don't even know if that's true. Was there any proof of that? Well, they didn't bring anything up, and I didn't find anything on the internet. They just kind of threw it in there, and then they immediately started talking about all this abuse that she was suffering Yeah. Uh, They didn't talk to the man she was supposedly seeing. And if she was seeing another man, good for her. When I say... Because her husband was abusive and a creeper. When I say that they just threw that in, it was literally one sentence. Christy had been seeing another man. That was all they said about it in the entire episode. So it's ridiculous. I have no idea whether that's true. I kind of feel like it wasn't. But anyway, 10 days before her disappearance, Christy went to the hospital with an injury to her hand that she received from Mark. Mark tries to explain this. He says that it was the one time he ever remembers anything physical happening between them and that he was trying to make her stay home and not go out, which he apparently thinks is an acceptable excuse to... <laughs> right! To send your wife to the hospital. But keeping her locked in your house. She tried to hit and kick him, he claims, and burn his neck with a cigarette. And then he says that he tossed her onto their waterbed. Which I wrote, of course they had a waterbed. <laughs> I wrote just OMG. <laughs> and she landed wrong and twisted her thumb. The doctor who treated Christy was also interviewed. They interviewed a lot of people for the segment. And yeah. the doctor said that Christy was acting extremely scared. She said it was like she was a scared rabbit and that Mark was kind of like stalking around. Right. He like was t- making a point to tell everyone in the hospital what happened and he, that he was burned by a cigarette on his neck. He was there to make sure she couldn't really talk to the doctor is what it seemed like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. They also interviewed Christy's cousin, who claims that Christy confided in her that Mark was abusive and would beat her. Christy's cousin says that one time she saw a huge bruise on Christy's side, and she tried to tell Christy to go to see a doctor or do something about it, and Christy just kind of brushed it off. Mark, of course, denies this, um, but he doesn't seem convincing at all. (laughs) No. On December 9th, two days before she disappeared, Christy visited a lawyer to begin divorce proceedings. Christy was so afraid of Mark and that he would find out that she went to a lawyer that was out of town. They interviewed the lawyer for Unsolved Mysteries, and he seems like the most credible person I've ever seen. Yeah. The lawyer who was interviewed says that he's handled hundreds of divorces, but he would put her in the top five most nervous and upset people he's ever dealt with. The lawyer, Just the fact that she went to go see someone out of town. Mm-hmm. That tells you a lot. Where How scared she was. Yeah. The lawyer also says that Christy told him she was experiencing abuse, and he saw signs of abuse on her, I'm assuming bruises or something, and actually called the police. Yeah. His office, he was like, we need to call the authorities and report this to them. Also, before she left, she set up another appointment with him. But, of course, this was two days before before she disappeared and was never seen from again. He tells the camera that he is convinced and is still convinced that the abuse happened. She was not making it up. It was real. This is where I started, I wrote down, this is where I started getting angry because at the beginning of this segment, the state troopers were like, well, it's been 11 months and yeah, I guess this isn't a normal quote unquote disappearance, whatever the fuck that means. And then later, you know, one of those run-of-the-mill disappearances we see in a town with only three thousand people. People just vanish into thin yeah. air. And then Robert Stack says, "What? What was Christie's state of mind when she left the office? Was she planning on running away? No. Or was she planning on fighting for the custody of her children? Well, let's fucking think about it for a second. There were medical records of abuse. There were witnesses to bruises, multiple witnesses, including a lawyer who has no reason to lie about this." 
She was so afraid of Mark that she went to a lawyer in a different town. She made an appointment to come back and see him. And then but two what, days later, she disappears. What was her state of mind, Samantha? Did she just run away? No, she didn't just fucking run away. Did she skip into a field and just go camping forever? Oh, my fucking God. So here is what happened the night of her disappearance. That night, they hired a babysitter and went out to the bar where Christy worked. Her, Them being Christy and Mark. Um, on Solve Mysteries. Who wants to go to the bar where they work for a date? Worst date ever. But anyway. Well, this is, maybe it was the only bar in town. I'm sure it is, but still. So they, Also, with this guy, no thanks. Well, this is that is the thing. They interviewed the babysitter for the show, and she said that she was surprised to see them going out because she knew that they weren't getting along. Yeah. Um, I wrote down, Mark says something dumb about how well he thought the night went. <laughs> of they, course he did. They left the bar around midnight. They stopped at a convenience store at, and headed home around 1230. The babysitter said that Mark arrived home without Christy between 1230 and one in the morning. She was apparently doing her homework in front of the TV. And she says that she doesn't remember seeing Christy. It was like her, she, her back was to the door um, Mark, I still think she would remember. Well, here's the thing. Mark claims that Christy walked right by the living room and went straight to bed. The babysitter says that it was strange because Mark paid her with cash, whereas Christy would pay her with a check. Did you ever babysit as a kid? Yes, all the time. How many times did the mother pay you with a check? I think... 100% of the time? The, whatever that family has established is how they pay babysitters is like what, what happens every happens. time. And it's almost always the mother. It's and, almost always the mother. That check is often written, like, in advance, like, waiting on a table or something, right? Like, And how often did the mother talk to you and ask you how it went, how the kids behaved? I don't think ever did a mother walk past me. And not even say hello. Not even say hello and go straight to bed and not say, oh, were my children complete terrors? <laughs> and I'm sorry that milk in the fridge is spoiled. You know what I mean? Like, you have some, like, chit-chat. They offer you yeah. to drive you home or whatever. Like, they never just walk past you and leave it. To their husband. And then, at least in the reenactment, they had Mark being like, uh, is this enough? He's just, like, handing her cash because he clearly doesn't understand how babysitting works. <laughs> like, no, dude, no. The babysitter goes on to say that she never heard footsteps. She didn't hear Christy in the bathroom because Mark claimed that she went into the bathroom. She said she never heard Christy in the bathroom. She Christy didn't say hello or ask how the kids behaved. Christy, she didn't hear Christy go look at, check on the kids or anything. I, it's pretty I, apparent that Christy was not there. I don't think Christy was there. I think the babysitter is saying like, well, I can't prove that she wasn't there, but if I didn't fucking see her, then she, where was she? Exactly. Yeah. I can't imagine a mother coming home from a night out with her leaving husband. her little kids in a babysitter's care and not saying how were the kids. Yeah. Are they asleep? Did they go down well? Did they eat their dinner? Did they... Whatever. It seems extremely strange Did they try to burn down the house? Like, (laughs) there's just standard questions that you ask. And it gets weirder. Mark says that the last time he saw her was at 2 a.m., and the next morning she was just gone. He claims that Christy had taken a suitcase full of belongings, but weird. Both family cars were still outside. Yeah, she was just walking down the street with a suitcase, as you do when you leave town to start your new life. When you leave your small children with an abusive father. Yeah, and then never call your mother or any friends or family ever again. Yeah, speaking of Christy's mother, at 9 a.m., Christy's mother called, and even though Mark knew that Christy was mysteriously missing, he told her mother that Christy was still in bed. He claims that he didn't want to worry her. Uh Uh-huh. Maybe. At 11.30, Mark brought his kids over to Christy's grandparents because, quote, he was planning to search for his wife. For some reason, reason, Christy's grandmother thought the strange thing wasn't that Christy was missing, but that uh, Mark didn't call before he dropped his kids off. 
Well, also, he didn't, like, ask the grandmother, like, hey, is Christy here? Yeah, it said, they said that Mark never asked Christy if Christy was at her house, which, which is, of course, strange. It's very strange, particularly if you know that if you were actually looking for your wife and you knew that you were having marital problems, you might say, hey, is my wife at her mom's house because she doesn't want to be in the house with me? That would be, like, a super standard and said so he's like, oh, here's the kids. Uh, really casually, your daughter's missing. I'm gonna, I'm, go, look I'm gonna go look for her. Uh, I I won't ask if you've heard from her or seen her. That's fine. Mm-hmm. So then Mark claims that he drove around town for two hours looking for Christy, but there is no one in town who can corroborate the story, which is obviously suspicious because in that small of a town, if you're driving around for two hours, two you're hours going up Where and down the same streets. Yeah, people are gonna notice. There's your nosy neighbors are gonna be like, "What one the fuck is Mark sign. doing?" Yeah. And then at 1.30 p.m., Mark files a missing persons report. And yeah, from what I can tell, there was no investigation for the first 11 months until the state troopers got involved. They, the state troopers are where this story picks up. So 11 months later, they discover that Mark moved out of his house the day after his wife disappeared. And a a few weeks later, he boxed up all her clothes and sold both of their cars. So yeah, when when you don't know where your wife went... So move, move to a different house the next day. Which just means that no one looked at that house for evidence. No one looked in those cars for evidence. Nope. Nothing was examined at all. Mm-mm. No. Yeah. Nothing Nothing happened at all. In March 1988, three months after she disappeared, Christy's suitcase was found in the bushes near a rest stop. Earlier, Mark was able to precisely detail the entire contents of the suitcase. Almost as if he packed it himself. Huh. Weird. Yeah, that's super weird. Yeah, everyone who saw the suitcase believed that it looked like it had been placed there and not just, like, thrown out of a vehicle. Like, the con- like her wallet was sort of placed next to sure, it. Sure, it's just, like, casually, like, askew. Like, oh, this will look like it's... And it just was actually throw it out of a car. It was funny because Trooper Aaron's was like, if my wife went missing and I looked at her closet, I wouldn't be able to tell what the fuck was not there. Oh, sure. You might go, like, I think she has more clothes than this, but you wouldn't be like... She, okay, she she's got a, this dress a and... sweater from the Gap that's a size medium and teal. Uh, you're looking for two turtlenecks, right? Like it was like really specific, he and they're like, say no, exactly what everything in that suitcase was. Which uh, is she wouldn't have gone anywhere suspicious. without her favorite boots that she got at DSW. <laughs> no, 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 no guy knows that. No one knows that. That's weird. No, I wouldn't no. expect. Travis to know it about me. I wouldn't know it about his shit either. All right. I would like to pledge right now. I'm going to interrupt you to pledge that I will never go to a new town and start a new life <laughs> without telling anyone. Me neither. If I disappear, you heard it right Something's now, wrong. Folks. Something's, Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Please look for me before 11 months. Please. Yes. I, I'm not going to just decide to go to Maine and start over. No. 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 Oh, this poor woman. Mm-hmm. No other trace of Christy has ever been found. The case had stalled at the point that Unsolved Mysteries came in. I did a little more research, but nothing ever came of this. They, ne- they, Mark was the number one suspect, but they never pursued charges against him. The only thing I was able to find that there, they found blood in his car, and the DNA matched Christy. Oh no! I don't know how much or or what. No. That was a. a I mean, on the unsolved mystery. I don't know why I'm acting surprised because. The right. other thing was that Christy had sought help from an abuse counselor. Mm. So when Christy. he says that they had one like tiny scuffle, and that's the only time he ever remembers their fights getting physical, he just knows that's the only lying. time there's a hospital report. He thought that was the he could deny the other times because 
It's he couldn't the, deny that time because she went to the hospital. It's the word of, uh, let's be honest, a dead woman against his. Yeah. So, and, you know. But she saw <sighs> a lawyer who she confided abuse to. Yeah. She, her cousin, a doctor, and apparently an abuse counselor. And, I mean, oh, honestly. Christy. And, and I'm sure she was sticking around for her kids. And... Yeah. Well, she was trying. Um, the Unsolved Mysteries wiki also said that when she went to that lawyer, she was going to try and pursue full custody of her children. Well, sure. You wouldn't want to leave. You wouldn't want your your abusive husband to have any visitation rights, no. But you can see why someone like that might have a motive. I wrote down that this episode is shady in calling it an unsolved mystery because it's kind of like, we don't know who did it. Cough, cough. Like, Mm -hmm. everyone knows who did it. Everyone knows who did it. Let's be honest. But he's not ever been charged with anything, so. Mm. No. So that's where we'll leave it. It's really sad. It's a really sad one. I... Okay. The but, uh, only positive things I can take away. I loved the fashion in this segment. It was pretty good. There's, if you want to see how people like Midwest people actually dressed in the 80s, not like the glamour you'll see in an 80s movie, like real fucking people, <laughs> this is the segment. It is. I also, the gas station they saw, he stopped at, so cute. Really? Like so yeah. retro and adorable that I actually wrote down cute gas station. <laughs> a weird thing to say but i get it everything else i wrote down is basically uh, i think we know who does us also nebraska best thrifting of my life if you live in nebraska you have no idea how lucky you are (laughs) there's so much old stuff and no one really wants it maybe we could swing by gothenburg and maybe we'll solve this Uh, mystery and do some thrifting see i was like oh we should go to christy's grave except she probably doesn't have a grave no, because she's never been found. Ugh. So that was that. It was a bummer. You want to talk about a prison escape? I guess. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about San, San Quentin. Quentin. So San Quentin, the oldest prison in California, opened in July 1852. How do I know that? Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, you're not an expert on no. maximum security prisons? I am not. It is a maximum security prison. Uh, it's unusual in that it has, like, armed patrols. But it's also unusual in that there's apparently no fucking security. <laughs> yeah. Beyond well, that. Yeah. Um, it has a gas chamber. Uh, people were executed there up until 2006. Um, it's in lots of TV and movies. I don't oh, know yeah. if Charles Manson is still there, but he was there. I think the Night Stalker was housed there. It's a place where they put... The worst of the worst, mm-hmm. I guess is my point. Um, but we are talking about an escape. Ooh. It's the summer of 1986. Mark Adams is the person who escapes. His crime was that back in 1979, three high school students went to a baseball park in Modesto, California to drink beer in a dugout. Something I never did, but seems like something teenagers would do. Mm-hmm. Three figures came out in ski masks, according to the reenactment, looking extremely terrifying, and tried to mug them. And one of the teenagers, being a dumb teenager, said, why don't you just leave us alone? Don't do that. Just just... give muggers your money. It's never worth it. No. I don't care if you're carrying... They probably didn't even have that much money. Yeah, just give it to them. Just give it to them. I don't care if you're carrying 10 grand. Just give it to them. It's not worth your life. It's not worth it. Uh, So, well, that altercation escalated, and the guys in ski masks fired on them. Uh, leaving one teenager dead and one injured. Mark Adams was fingered as the trigger man, and he was sentenced to 25 years to life and sent to San Quentin. San Quentinosaurus always bragged about being, like, impenetrable and having very high security, including these, like, armed guards around the clock. 
So that's what makes the fact that Mark Adams, four years later, escaped. <sighs> kind of. I wrote down, why does this prison look like a normal office building? Because they yeah. apparently just let the prisoners walk around sort of unsupervised. They worked at this place that looked like it could be any office from any <laughs> yes. town. So he was able to just leave because he said he was going to the dentist. I mean, he was still in the prison. I guess. Compound. But it was weird that no one went with him. Okay, so Mark Adams, he enters the prison at 19. He would have been eligible for parole in 2007. He was considered a model prisoner, so which is, I just always find a hilarious phrase. And if I was like going to release a punk album, I think I would call it modern, model prisoner. <laughs> a model prisoner. Um, and so his privileges for being a model prisoner included that he got to work with a computer, which lots of inmates don't get to, um, as a clerk in the legal department. So they basically just like gave him a nine to five job mm -hmm. because they wouldn't have to pay him or they pay them like cents on the dollar or whatever. He was apparently always obeyed the rules and blah, blah, blah. So exactly four years to the day of arriving at San Quentin, he got an authorized pass to leave his job early and go to the dentist. Which, yeah, when they showed him leaving work, it was really looked like he was just walking down a normal street. Mm-hmm. But is that inside the prison compound? It apparently was. I guess. I don't I wrote get San it. Quentin doesn't look very secure. <laughs> <laughs> so at 2.30, he left work. He went to a security checkpoint, and he walked towards the dentist's office, but was never seen again. He was not in his cell for the 415 head count. And they said that on a good day, when everybody's in place, the count takes 45 minutes, which I just wrote down. It seems very inefficient. But anyway, <laughs> they literally like count every single person that's in the whole prison at 4.15. So by 4.45, Adams was confirmed missing. The prison went into lockdown and no trace of him was found whatsoever. They couldn't find any evidence of how he escaped. And they had three theories. The first theory was that he put on civilian clothes to leave with the gates the, the visitors would have used. But to do that, he would have needed a photo ID to show at two of the gates. They never explained how he could have gotten said photo ID. I mean, stuff Like, does, would someone smuggle in a fake yeah, one for him? I, I stuff does get smuggled into prisons. I don't know. The other theory was that he went over the 25-foot wall, despite there being armed guards. He was a, considered an observant person. He would have known the guard's schedule. Could he... Also, the wall had, like, pipes and, like, hand grips so that it <laughs> they could... They were perfect for climbing over. Yeah! I was like, surely that's not necessary. Like, or cover those up or something. Put spikes on them. I don't know. Because they showed someone scaling the wall. And I was Very like, easily. I was like, yeah, that's probably what happened. Um, so, okay, maybe he went over the wall because he was smart enough to figure out their schedules. Or did he hide in a garbage or service truck which to, you know, feed and clothe all the prisoners. Trucks are going in and out all day. They are searched. But did he hide in one of those and get out? In the two years since he has, had escaped on Unsolved Mysteries, they had found no evidence of how he got out and no one knew. Did they let him cut hay in a field by himself and someone just went and picked him up? <laughs> We're learning so much about the things that do not work in this world. Uh, in the update... They say seven years later, he was found in Puerto Rico. He was sent back to San Quentin, and then a year later was shot and killed by a guard during a fist fight. I have, I have a little bit more information. Did you find out what might have fucking happened? I was so frustrated by this segment because they're like, no one ever figured out how we got out. I'm so, like, what? He was um, found in Puerto Rico. He was sent back to San Quentin, but 
they didn't have a way to compel him to tell him how he escaped, and he never told them. So no one knows? No one knows how he he escaped. Oh, my God. Did they at least beef up their security? Yeah, I would hope so. (laughs) What's kind of interesting is that his death ended up awarding a $2.3 million award for wrongful death for using unnecessary lethal force. Really? So the prison had authorized... Who got that? His family? I think his mother. Okay. Um, yeah, his mother did. The prison policy authorized using handguns to break up fistfights. What? Yes. Instead of... You're supposed to d- deter them with gunfire. <laughs> Instead of using tear gas or any other sort of non-lethal... Uh, Jesus Christ. So even though the the individual guard was following the rules of the prison, that was deemed unnecessary. Yeah. And that just because an inmate got in a fist fight, which... can't shoot them. That must happen all the time, right? We're talking about people who are in jail for life. They don't really have anything to lose. They get in fights all the time. They get in fights all the time. Anyway, so they shot and killed him, and his mother... Got damages for that. He, apparently, the guard that killed him had bragged about it to his girlfriend, which came up at the trial, which is disgusting. Uh, I mean, he didn't seem like a stand-up guy, but you no, can't just he doesn't seem like a stand-up shoot guy to kill because he threw his fist at someone. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting—I don't want this to sound callous—but Mark Adams had killed one person and was in jail in a high-security prison for life. So I was kind of like, we see lots of cases where someone kills someone and serves like five years, right? right? Yeah. But the pers- the teenager that he killed was connected to law enforcement. Oh. So he ended up getting a, a harsher sentence at a at a harsher facility than you might expect. I'm I'm not excusing him killing a teenager in a baseball dugout. That's awful. But it didn't no, it didn't seem it, right. I was like, really? He went to where Charles Manson went for that? Uh, that's... And he didn't... I mean, it, what, was it second degree murder? It wasn't like... No. It was... he only... He got 25 to life, which doesn't seem like very much for a murder, and then he was in a maximum security prison. Right. And so I think it's, it's because... Someone the, pulled some strings to the get The victim was connected to law enforcement. Yeah. Okay. Which also might... I don't know if that was a factor in why they... Shot him. ...used lethal force also. That's kind been. of my, fo- my point. Okay. Um, so he's dead. He never revealed how he escaped. That's so frustrating. He um, had befriended someone in San Quentin. So when he escaped, he went to that inmate's wife's house and hid out for a little while and ended up going to Puerto Rico and getting married. But eventually he was found. Okay. But yeah, he kept that. He took that secret to his grave. Do you want to hear who I think should get MVM from this? Yes, segment? please. I picked out. There's, okay, so there's part of the reenactment where, because Unsolved Mysteries made a big deal about going to San Quentin. There was oh, one sure. point where Robert Stack is narrating something and he's walking through these cells and the guard like closes the cell behind him. Yeah. Anyway, they do a reenactment where all of the prisoners are leaving their cells. And in front of the actor who played this guy and behind him are two guys with some spectacular spectacular mustaches the one in front i can i can pull it up on my phone so you can i can get your reaction the one in front has like a curly (laughs) curly like long hair and like a matching Uh mustache and then Uh the guy behind him has the bushiest (laughs) mustache beard combo that i have ever samantha they're probably dirtbags they brought well they're these these are the actors though Oh, okay. So in real life, I mean... Fair point. Okay. These are just the actors. These are not... They didn't put Robert Stack with actual violent criminals. No, these are just the actors in the reenactment. Let me see. Oh, my God, (laughs) yes. 
They're tied for MVM. Are yeah. You, are you my right or am no, I right? No, no, no. These are the winners. They're These so, are the winners right how here. How bushy is that mustache-beard combo? Yeah, that's... I've never seen anything like it. I also like how your this first guy here's prison shirt is, like, unbuttoned really low. I mean... He's, like, really trying to work his, like, prison <laughs> getup. Make it, like, a little, a little sexy. Well, he's, you know, he's got that luscious, sensual hair. Ugh. Ugh. The match, no, matching you're right. mustache. Aren't also, update from last week. We were debating who should be most valued mustache. And we Tommy looked, Zeno kind of won. No, 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 no. Samantha, no. No. It's the head. Oh, yeah. It's the ghost head. We were so overwhelmed by seeing this cheesy ghost head that we forgot the ghost head has a mustache. We didn't even notice his awesome mustache. Well, Go follow us on Instagram and check out that's the, the screenshot of the, he- the ghost head. The ghost head is the winner. He the has ghost a head great going, mustache. <laughs> yeah. That's the winner. I, I, I was I'm posting sorry. that to Instagram, and I'm like, why didn't we pick him for MVM? I, I was, I just didn't even think about it. So sorry, Tommy Zeno. I'm sure you would have liked to win because you were so proud of being on Unsolved Mysteries. Most of our Instagram followers picked him, but it's the ghost head. Sorry, we changed our mind. They're outvoted. Tommy gets runner up. I don't know. Yeah, fine, whatever. Did you have anything else to say about San Quentin? No, that's pretty much it. Uh, if anybody knows of a cool San Quentin story, get in touch. Sure, let us know. But. Yeah, bye. <laughs> that was it. That was it. We don't know how he escaped. It didn't really seem that hard based <laughs> on the reenactments. But Seems like it could have been any number of uh, ways. I'm probably wrong. My only aside is, because I'm a totally normal person, I went to visit Strange Ways Prison in Manchester, <laughs> nice. England, which I just saw the outside of it for, uh, if you're into the band The Smiths, it was for Smiths-related reasons. <laughs> that I had to go. I was sure. on a I was on a private Smiths tour of Manchester, which included the outside of Strange Ways Prison, which is beautiful. It's gorgeous. Uh-huh. It's okay. a beautiful brick building designed by the same architect that did their the Manchester City Hall, but also London's Natural History Museum. Wow! And the tour guide, who Sally's passed away, Craig Gill. I'm so sorry made a point of saying, like, yeah, this probably doesn't look like prisons you're used to in America because it didn't have those towers for mm-hmm. guards or anything like that. It was just, like, a beautiful <laughs> brick building. building. And later, after I took that tour, a prisoner went on a pr- protest, Hunter strike, where he was on the roof for, like, a week, and they just, like, let him be up there. They didn't, like, get, get him oh, down. Wow. Yeah, I think he was protesting the food they or the conditions. They didn't go up and shoot him? No, they didn't go up and shoot him. <laughs> they were just sort of like, he'll come in event. It was a much more English attitude. He'll come in eventually. Sure. And they just like let him be on the roof of Strange Ways Prison. Okay. Uh, I just, I don't know. I just find that funny. That That's a funny. total aside. Different cultural, uh, I don't know, takes on sure. how prisons should work. <laughs> you want to know what's also funny? Yes. Stephen Cox's forehead. <laughs> this yep. next segment, you guys. Oh wait, I know. There's who nothing I, I can no, say no, no. about this. Except I know who I wanted to be MVM for this episode. What? And it's who? when they do Stephen Cox's like what he might look like with a beard and mustache. <laughs> it's like a computer generated mustache. Oh, that's great. So this next segment is a fraud. And we're going back to Medford, Oregon, folks. Never, ever invest in Medford. What can I say? How fucking wealthy is this town that there are two Ponzi schemes that were both raking in 
millions of dollars from people in this town at the same exact time. I don't understand. Medford, get your shit together. If you're in Medford, we would love to hear from you. What is that town like? And why? They must be all rich idiots. I have no idea. Why are there so many con men? Why are there so many gullible little old ladies? Why are you giving all your money to these men? Yeah, that aren't established in any, you know, like, if I opened, like, a financial advisory building business thing. I don't even know what to call it. People just just show up and be like, here's $100,000, Liz. Why don't you open two jewelry stores? (laughs) Okay. Anyway, I'm so sorry. So the first Go ahead with your mystery. The first thing I have in my notes for this segment is Stephen Cox's forehead. Whoa. (laughs) Tyra would call it a five-finger forehead, but I think it's even more... It's like... it's like a 10 finger forehead. It, I mean, it doesn't help that he's balding, but. His forehead goes on for days. It's very it flat. Ne- it just never ends. Yeah. I, I was so it's distracted a, it's by It's at this least forehead. a five head. For <laughs> sure. Yeah. For sure. So, anyway. I wrote down. There's more to the story than his he forehead. He was good at sports, must be trustworthy, which seemed to be how the town felt. <laughs> so, Unsolved Mysteries profiled two women who were defrauded by Stephen Cox. Lorraine, whose husband left her $100,000 when he died and was all the money she had. I did and feel bad for Lorraine. I felt, yeah. And Michelle, a drunk driver, had left her in a wheelchair for the rest of her life and insurance mm. awarded her $75,000. Then it says that on September 24th, 1984, Stephen Cox disappeared. They flashed to a bankruptcy court in Medford, Oregon, where 200 people came forward saying that they had given Stephen Cox more than three and a half million dollars and every penny was gone. Robert Stack asks, how did Stephen Cox get so much money out of the people of Oregon? Well, Robert Stack says, he was a hometown boy and people of the town trusted him. And then he says that they hope that if he's watching tonight, he will return and deal with them honorably. And I just wrote, okay. (laughs) First of all, people at that court and he doesn't still have that money. No. He he didn't just... It's gone, you guys. And if he did have it, he wasn't going to come back and hand it over. He didn't just put it in a vault and close the vault and then not, (laughs) and then not give it to you. You know, no. like it, it's it's spent. It's he gone. wasn't buying rare and expensive sports memorabilia like Dennis Walker was <laughs> down the road. Which but Charlie Sheen, give us a call. <laughs> yeah, Charlie Sheen has it. Charlie Sheen has it. So then they talk about Steven. In high school, he was a popular kid and an all-American athlete. He was captain of the football team, blah, blah, uh, blah, all that. I don't trust him just for that. He went to college in Oregon and married his college sweetheart. In 1982, he started S.D. Cox Investments. Which I put, sounds fake and dirty. Yep. <laughs> I don't know how it managed to I don't know what both. else to say about that, but that's absolutely true. It does not sound like a real business, and it also <laughs> sounds like it's in a porno. Yeah. S.D. Cox Investments. <laughs> yeah. It's like... Come here and see Stephen Cox. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, like, the naughty secretary is sitting on the desk or something. Yeah. Like, yes, S.D. Cox, <laughs> invest in me. <laughs> Can't deal. Oh, my God. The investigator tells Unsolved Mysteries that they think when he started his company, Stephen did want to run it honestly. I don't know about that, but Maybe. the investigator thinks. He had previously had success investing in gold and silver. I wrote that I'm not really sure what that means, but basically he wasn't always a con man. Yeah, it sort of seems like maybe people were trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know why, since he was swindling little old ladies. <laughs> no idea. That he started this investment business and then got in over his head and it turned into a Ponzi scheme. As opposed to it was... A Ponzi scheme from the beginning. Yeah. I, 
Okay. Which, I don't know. How... Is that more honorable? I don't really know that it is. <laughs> oh, no. Just like our friend Dennis Walker, Cox offered his investors a 25% return on their investments. And just like Dennis Walker, in exchange for their money, all he gave people was an IOU. Don't You guys, don't give all of your money to some guy in exchange for an IOU. I just not put, smart. do not invest all of your money in one place. No, or that. I don't know anything about money, but I know that. <laughs> Michelle, the woman I mentioned earlier who was injured in a drunk driving crash, needed $1,200 a month to pay for round-the-clock nursing care. She decided that Cox's high rate of return was worth the risk, so she no. quote unquote invested no. the entire seventy five thousand dollars with Cox, and for three years she received a monthly payment of twelve thousand fifty dollars. I just don't get this. You have seventy five thousand dollars. You're going to give it all to this guy, and he's going to give you only the amount you need to pay for nursing care a month. Yeah, because you can't use any of the the rest of that money for food. Yeah, or what was she doing for the rest of her expenses? Need. I have no clue. Certainly there's other things you need to pay for. That's weird. And I I guess she thought eventually she'll get 25% more. It didn't make sense to me, the reasoning, but... Clearly he's very manipulative. Clearly. He's preying on people that are in bad situations. Vulnerable situations. Yeah. That's what we should take away from this. Cox's business doubled and then tripled. He brought in his old friend Eugene Richmond as a partner. Eugene is interviewed for Unsolved Mysteries. And so shady. I wrote down he's either dumb or lying about how much he knew. I think, I think he's it's lying. The, the, yeah. I, I, I personally believe that he is full of shit. He says that he, he, whatever Stephen Cox asked me to do, I did. He said... That doesn't make it better. He said, I trusted him unequivocally. So yeah, you're either dumb or you're lying about. How I much think you he's knew. totally lying. He's trying to act like he's he just got saying, caught I just, up in it. I just did what I was told, and I yeah. thought he was doing things the right way. No, you didn't. no, you didn't. Because I think he he was kind of a, more of a charmer. Yeah, I wrote down Eugene is the one who went out to little old ladies' houses and convinced them to give him all of their money. Yeah, and I loved Lorraine's house. By the way, they showed her like wood paneled, very retro living room, and it was adorable. Mm-hmm. Um, Lorraine, invite me over. I love it. It looked lovely. Anyway, Eugene claims that he was honest with people and that if they asked him what happens if the company goes belly up, that he would look them straight in the face and say, you will lose all your money. Oh, no, you did not. Well, of course, that's a lie. And one of the little old ladies in question says so much. Lorraine tells Unsolved Mysteries that he never said that. Um, And Eugene said, well, people just don't want to hear it. But Lorraine claims that Eugene told her that they had money put aside so that they could pay off any one of their investors right then. Yeah, one of them. Just one of them. <laughs> yeah, but th- I mean, that's not even true. Yeah. So Lorraine tells Unsolved Mysteries, so she's like, well, he's lying then because he never told me that there's a risk of me losing all my money. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is kind of how investments work, but I still feel bad for Lorraine. Uh, yeah, because that's all the money she had. So by 1983, S.D. Cox was doing well, primarily because they were stealing everyone's money. <laughs> They bought a restaurant, a bar, a video arcade, two jewelry stores, and an inventory of gems worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. By 1984, many of Cox's investments went sour. Eugene says that Stephen... Yeah, because those are terrible investments, by the way. Yeah. An arcade? Putting your money in a restaurant, which is an extremely risky business that makes, like, not that much profit. Margins are so slim. Like, I don't... 
I do this podcast. I don't have any business Listen, sense. I've watched enough Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay yes, exactly. to know that you fucking never <laughs> open a restaurant. That, the point of that show is basically never, never open a restaurant with Gordon yeah. Ramsay. Unless yeah. you want to fail so that Gordon Ramsay will come over. Oh, to yeah. Restaurant. That would be kind of cool. I've considered it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have enough upfront cash, so I can't make it happen. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> now I'm just laughing at the idea of you opening this like sham muffin shop or something. <laughs> they are in running Ramsey, really badly. Because I have a weird crush on Gordon Ramsay. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Eugene says that when Cox's investments, such as his real estate and restaurants, started to fail, he would keep pumping money into them instead of cutting his losses. And then Eugene says basically the only thing that I agree with in the that he says in this entire segment. <laughs> and that is that Stephen Cox was competitive and that he didn't want to lose ever, which is exactly how these people are. Well, right? yeah, he's like this jock sports hero t- guy who was also town probably, loved. Yeah, who was also probably had no morals. And yeah. Just, you know, he was probably narcissistic and he was going to win no matter what. He's one. We all know this white boy <laughs> who thinks he can do no wrong, right? He's just like the golden child of the town. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves him. He's super popular. He's probably like still wearing his class ring. Ugh. Does that mean something to you? <laughs> it means something to me. <laughs> He's still got his, like, leather, you know, his letter jacket from the football team. He's just, like, smug, and he thinks he's got all the answers, and... And he's invincible, right? He's invincible. He never grew out of that phase. Right. So then they say, as a last resort, Eugene had to go back to Lorraine after she had been in the hospital and ask her for her last $5,000. Yeah, like a total jag-off. That made me so angry. As a last resort, you had to go to a little old lady and ask for the rest of her money? I don't understand. Literally her last five grand. And... It didn't, yeah, so, and I wrote on, I'm having a hard time feeling bad for Eugene. Yeah, boo-hoo, Eugene. Anyway, Eugene claims that he doesn't remember going to Lorraine and asking for the rest of her money. Sure, okay. And then Steve tells Eugene that he has to leave town, and Eugene goes with him. Eugene makes it sound like a spur-of-the-moment thing, but the investigator says that they know that Steve and Eugene <laughs> planned this for at least a month before they just didn't show up yeah, to work Eugene one morning. Yeah, Eugene is a total liar. Also, Steve's rich person living room. If you could get me oh a screenshot of that. It's so like dusty pink dynasty. <laughs> it has the world's worst drapes. Oh, it's yeah. like, I, I don't know if that's really his living room, but if it is, it reveals a lot about his character. If it's not his exact living room, the one it, he has is very yeah, close. Yeah. Oh, boy. On Friday, September 21st, 1984, Eugene told his employees that him and Cox would be out of town until Tuesday. The weekend during that weekend, Stephen and Eugene cleaned out their office safe, taking over two hundred thousand dollars in gold, silver, jewelry, and cash. It was also super easy for them to take all their financial records because they were stored on floppy disks and kept in a box. <laughs> on July, oh, in July nineteen eighty five, Stephen's wife Deborah returned to Medford and met with the investigators. She was not actually wanted and had no pending criminal charges. And then within a week, Eugene turned himself in. He did have criminal charges pending and warrants, but Eugene was not super helpful because he couldn't make any statements about Stephen without incriminating himself. So they both talked to the investigators through their lawyers and basically gave them no information. As a result, the investigators are still looking for Stephen Cox, and that's why Unsolved Mysteries got involved. There was one more detail, and I kind of love this. Um, They said that there was one mysterious investor who isn't actually mysterious. They say later that they know who he is who invested hundreds of thousands of dollars with S.D. Cox Investments, and as security for his investments, he took out a life insurance policy on Stephen Cox. 
So basically, if I don't get my money back, I'll murder you and collect the life insurance. <laughs> Which is also how Samantha and I do business. <laughs> Be warned, Casper Mattress. <laughs> Eugene claims that that's why Stephen left town, because he didn't want to... He didn't want to just close down the business and do it in a legit way because he was afraid that this guy would hurt him or his family. The investigator was like, yeah, we know who this guy is. So it'd be pretty stupid if you showed up in town and he killed you, <laughs> which makes sense. Which, but that's sometimes how the mob works. I don't know. I guess, but eh. I feel like Steven, this probably wasn't the reason he left town. I think right. he was just trying to escape and not face justice. Because, yeah. Did uh, they really run off to Hawaii? I thought that was weird. Oh. Aren't you supposed to run off to a place that's not in the country that you're running from? <laughs> kind of. So basically they were looking for him. Um, there was an update that uh, Eugene was convicted of racketeering and received two years in prison. Yeah, tell me more about that. That's all I had on that. But oh. I do have... <laughs> I think he just served two years and then got out. That's only two years. For racketeering? Yeah, I guess whatever. I mean, in general, I feel like I would be in favor of reduce sentences for non-violent crimes. Like, why are we keeping people in prison for selling pot? No one cares. But, but this- should you be allowed to take everyone in town's money and then serve just two serve years? two years? I guess I assume you have to maybe pay fines as well or give everyone's money back? I don't think he did. Because he doesn't have it. <laughs> That's true. I know with, okay, I know with child support that if you go to jail for not paying your child support, that, like, relieves your debt. Hmm. Like, a cer- essentially, you're paying it in prison time interesting but, but that means that I, maybe this isn't true in every state so you know whatever but that means that then if you know your deadbeat ex goes to jail then you don't get any of that money that's sort of that's how the debt is paid that sucks so maybe the debt is paid in his mere two years of yeah and then serving he's time. free to talk to unsolved mysteries about it anyway on the night of the broadcast, viewers told authorities that Cox was living in Boise, Idaho, under the alias Robert Bradley Davis. However, by the next day, when authorities arrived, Cox had vanished, leaving a new wife behind. Five, <laughs> five days later, okay. Cox checked into the Lake Mead Lodge Hotel, registering under the name John Strauss and listing an Arizona address. The hotel manager, Edna Reed, became suspicious of him because he never left his room and had put incorrect car and license plate information on his hotel registration forms. Hmm. Two weeks later, Edna noticed that Strauss, quote-unquote, was taking his garbage and putting it into a bin several rooms away from his. She decided to look through the trash, and in Unsolved Mysteries, she said, like a typical nosy woman... You know how we are. (laughs) Which, I don't know that that's gender specific, but I do appreciate her nosiness. My hat goes off to her. Same. Yeah. I don't think it's a flaw. (laughs) She decided to look through his trash and found a note saying that the Unsolved Mysteries broadcast was a bombshell. So he he just like wrote that down on a piece of paper. Dear Diary, the Unsolved (laughs) Mysteries was a bombshell. And then he was like, oh crap, that's incriminating. And he tore it up. But the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Too bad for curious females everywhere. Uh We found it. Edna and her husband contacted the police. And the Unsolved Mysteries, they're like, yeah, we read that. And we were like, well, maybe it's time to call the police. They determined that Strauss's car. She was clearly so proud of herself, too. And I was like, yeah, girl. I just wanted to give her a high five through the TV. Me, too. They determined that, quote-unquote, Strauss's car did not belong to him. When authorities arrived at the hotel, however, he had vanished. The next day, he was pulled over in a casino parking lot after an officer spotted him. 
He gave the officer a driver's license with the name Robert Davis. A computer check determined that that was an alias for Stephen Cox. Cox was immediately placed under arrest. In Cox's car, they found suitcases filled with jewelry, rings, necklaces, baseball cards, coins, and other expensive items. Baseball cards. It is believed that these are items that Cox stole from his investors. He was found guilty of all charges and sentenced to 20 years in prison. So he got 20 years. Yeah, that's much more reasonable. He he was released on parole after serving only three years, though. Oh. (laughs) But he was arrested again in 2005 in Garden City, Idaho, on charges of grand theft, forgery, computer crimes, and and a parole violation. Huh. He was again released from prison in December 2013. Did he also commit bigamy with his second wife? Did he divorce his first wife? I didn't even think about that. Maybe. Eh, That's the least of his crimes, but... So, he was arrested again in 2005, and then he was released again in 2013. So, he served maybe eight more years in prison. Well, watch out for that guy, everybody. If you see... If you see that forehead coming, run the other way. I was just saying, if someone with a really big forehead (laughs) is asking for all of your money and also baseball cards, be suspicious, please. Yep. That's our advice. (laughs) As, and don't go to Medford. <laughs> and yeah, don't go to Medford. And if you're from Medford, please tell us what it's like because I'm hang on to your money with both hands, Medford Oakland <laughs> residents. People are coming for it. People that love Wow. The, their favorite shape is pyramid. And they are <laughs> they are coming for you. The craziest thing is they never figured out if Stephen Cox and Dennis Walker from Sports Memorabilia Mystery were, were doing this together or if it was I, just a coincidence. I think they were secret lovers. <laughs> I'm going to The put, plot thickens. I'm going to put that theory out there. <laughs> Their love of baseball cards brought them together. Maybe. And swindling people and out swindling of all their money. Pe- and their hatred of old ladies and their love of baseball cards. Yeah. I mean, Dennis Walker. And their love of Medford. Dennis Walker swindled all his employees and <laughs> Stephen Cox swindled everyone around town who was old or vulnerable. Yeah. What a dirtbag. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, that was my mystery. That was it. There's one last short mystery. Very short. This is an unusual and very sad segment. An unexplained death. It's strange because it's just Robert Sack talking to uh, Lieutenant Arthur Durant about a case. There are no reenactments. There's no interviews. It's just it's like literally tacked on at the end. Sort of yeah. like a. I don't know, America's Most Wanted. Kind it's of a thing. little bit more like that. So it is the death of Barbara Jean Horn. This guy's. I'm so sorry. Brace yourself. This is the shortest mystery and the fucking saddest. This is sad. So there was not very much in the segment at all. I got some additional information off Unsolved Mysteries Wiki. I thank God for that thing. Yeah, I know. It's really helped us out. Thank you, Unsolved Mysteries Wiki. So, this is so sad. So Barbara Jean Horn was four years old. We're talking about July 12th, 1988 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, she was playing in the family yard. Her mother was at work. She went outside. When the dad went to check on her, she was gone. He called He called the police. The search, search began two hours later. She was found bludgeoned to death and stu- stuffed inside of a television box placed at the curb uh, a couple blocks away. Yep. <sighs> I mean, does it, does any, does it get sadder than that? Not, not really. Nope. Um, the box was the only clue that they had to arresting the pedophile who abducted and molested her, is what it says on uh, Unsolved Mysteries Wiki. So, the reason that this lieutenant was on Unsolved Mysteries was supposed to say, did anyone see a guy carrying a box? Because they did have a couple witnesses. 
There was a composite sketch. It looked like an alien. Is yeah, what I wrote down. It's not a good sketch. It's horrible. Uh, Maybe it's what he actually looked like, but Jesus Christ. I was <laughs> like, this is from outer space. An alien took this girl. <laughs> the eyes in the sketch are way too far apart. No and, one's like, looking two different directions. No one's eyes look like that. Um, so four eyewitnesses observed a quote unquote suspicious man killing, carrying a tele- television box that was believed to be the one Barbara was later found in. He was described as a white male between 25, 30 years old. 5'8", 180 pounds with sandy blonde hair. He was wearing a white t-shirt and cut-off jeans. It's it's sort of solved, sort of not. Oh, really? So the update was that her neighbor, Walter Ogrod, <laughs> I don't know how to like, say that. Like Ogrodden potatoes? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what his face looks like. O-G-R-O-D? How would you say that? I don't know. Ogrod. Sounds right to me. Had been arrested for the case. Great, right? Well, okay. Um, (laughs) he was interviewed by the police. He gave some conflicting information when he was confronted about it. He broke down and confessed. He told them that she had come over to play with a kid in the family that he lured her into the basement and sexually assaulted her and then ended up hitting her with a metal rod. He claimed that he washed her, wrapped her in a towel, placed her in the television box and then disposed of her body a couple feet away. After the confession, he was charged with murder, and he allegedly later confessed also to a jailhouse snitch. However, parts of his confession don't fit the facts of the crime. It doesn't seem like the the injuries were caused by a metal pipe. Um, He, the television box isn't connected to him. It's connected to somebody else. I don't know that that really matters. Um, when it went to trial in 1993, he claimed that he was con- coerced into the confession to confessing into the crime and that the jailhouse snitch was lying in order to get a better deal. He was almost acquitted, but then one juror changed his mind and that was a mistrial. He was later retried in 96 and convicted and he was sentenced to death. However, um, that was, what do you call that? They've just delayed it. He's been he's been oh, sentenced like a to death. Stay of execution? Yeah, he's had a stay of execution. His supporters point to the fact that he was just one vote away from acquittal in his first case. He looks nothing like the composite. He weighs a lot less. He has a totally different build. Blah blah blah. Also, another man, child killer Raymond Sheehan, was identified by as a, an eyewitness as being in the area. There's also no physical evidence that connects Walter to Barbara's murder. So you called that other guy a child killer. So he'd killed other children. Yes, someone who had killed other children. A known child killer, Raymond Sheehan, uh, was in the area at that time and was seen there by an eyewitness. I don't know that he did it, but there's actually no evidence connecting Walter to the crime except for his confession, which he now says is coerced. He remains in prison. He was given a stay of execution in 2005. He's still on death row. Oh. So, so he could have maybe not did it. He could have maybe not did it. I, 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 there just isn't evidence that I found for me to th- really think either way. Well, that sucks. Yeah. And the little girl died. So. And also, yeah, a four-year-old was murdered and put in a television box. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I think I don't that's even the know only, what else to say. I would like to say that Walter definitely did it, um, but can't, I don't know. Really? I can't really. At least the 
the way this the evidence on Unsolved Mysteries Wiki is written, it does leave it up to the doubt, I would say. I, I It's not beyond a shadow of a doubt that I think he did it. Um, and he's on death row, which... And he's on you want to think that people who are on death row are there without a reasonable doubt. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, when I was talking to Mac about believe... it, he was like, how did he confess and get the death penalty? Like, wouldn't yeah. you think that you would confess for a better deal, but... It seems like he just sort of broke down and confessed and didn't, you know, perhaps a lawyer wasn't there to say he'll confess if he, for you know, in exchange for for life in prison or whatever. No, it sounds like he confessed in the interrogation. Right. Like many do. But then you go, well, maybe that was a false confession since there's actually no evidence that connects him to the crime at all. Ugh, I feel gross about that one. And his confession doesn't seem to actually add up with the physical evidence of the crime since he got some of the details wrong that sucks yeah it sure does sorry about that folks and um i'm very sorry for the family of barbara jean horn in philadelphia yeah <sighs> do you have a recommendation sure do perhaps a more lighthearted recommendation it is lighthearted. yay um i didn't have so i was thinking yesterday about what i should recommend this week and i don't have a new book or podcast or anything sure but then i was on facebook and i saw this Washington Post article. Okay. And uh, so <laughs> my my recommendation is this article. And just because I related to it so much. Okay. What, I don't think you need, to, you need to go find it because I'm going to tell you basically all of it. <laughs> the headline says, Lulu the dog flunked out of CIA bomb sniffer school because she just didn't care. <laughs> so of all time i'm lulu in Uh this uh i don't know i just feel i feel for lulu i just do the article says terrorists might be heading to american airports with explosive packed suitcases right now probably not violent extremists could be fashioning pipe bombs in their basements thousands of u.s security officials spend their days and nights preoccupied with detecting and preventing such threats but you know who doesn't care lulu the black lab doesn't care This is Pulitzer Prize right here. Until recently, the young pup was in training to be an explosives detection canine for the CIA. It's an important and noble job, one that the agency refers to as no less than the first line of defense against explosive threats to the agency's personnel and buildings and headquarters and beyond. Uh Uh-huh, sure. But Lulu, the CIA... Oh, but Lulu, the CIA announced Wednesday in a series of tweets, was really not that into it. (laughs) And then there's pictures of Lulu. She's so cute. The CIA says we're sad. We're all Lulu. I'm Lulu, you guys. We're sad to announce that a few weeks into training, Lulu began to show signs that she wasn't interested in detecting explosive odors. (laughs) I mean, who is? The article asks, can we all relate? Sure. Lulu's assignment was a matter of life and death. But but becoming a canine Carrie Matheson involved more mundane study, like peering into metal canisters and exploring concrete blocks. There's a picture of her peering into a metal canister. The CIA actually tweeted the word pup date and says that sometimes even after testing, our pups make it clear that being an explosive detection canine isn't for them. Wow. Uh Training involved extra treats, extra pats, extra fun, because sometimes even aspiring hero dogs need a little additional motivation. Can I adopt Lulu? That wasn't enough for Lulu. Still, she seemed to know she wasn't living her best life. (laughs) 
The agency, to its credit, honored her wish to be her true self. Wow. You can't adopt her because her handler adopted her, and now she just lives at home being a lazy dog like like so Oh, smart, Lulu. Yeah. I'm like, can I be Lulu? Because here's the thing. I've been so busy doing activities. Having this dumb podcast for some reason. I just sometimes I get to the point where I'm like, I don't care. I just want to lay in my bed and be lazy. And have people bring you treats and give you belly rubs. Yeah, sounds yeah. fucking awesome. Lulu gets to live that life now. She lives Lulu. at home with another black lab. and she You made just, the right choice to she, not smell those odors. And detect explosives. Yeah. And they'll find a German Shepherd or something who'll want to do that job. And Lulu gets to just lay down and be a dog. I love Lulu. Me too. We're all Lulu. I'm Lulu. You're Lulu. I'm sorry, Lenny Briscoe. Lulu is the <laughs> new mascot of this show. She is. So that, was, that wow. was my recommendation. That was pure art. Thank you for bringing that into my life. It was just life. some journalism that I really connected with. <laughs> You're like, this is me. <laughs> I have a tiny random recommendation. More random than mine? I think so, actually. <laughs> wow, let's hear it. For my fellow insomniacs out there, if you've been having trouble sleeping... I'm going to recommend a YouTube video that I have found to okay. be helpful. It is called Quartz Crystal Bowl Meditation with Me- Mel Zabel. Mel Zabel? Mel Zabel. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, it's not meant for putting you to sleep. It's, oh. it's meant for meditating. Well, I mean, that kind of puts you to sleep. Yeah. Right? It's, a, it's a guy playing a bunch of crystal bowls that make a really relaxing sound. And then... Oh. Doing a sort of guided meditation where you're like... Melzabel is man? Yes. Okay. It's not what I was picturing. <laughs> uh, he's, I assume, extremely wise. Probably enlightened. Probably. Um, he's like sitting in front of a painting of the pyramids or something. <laughs> as, you, as you do when you're meditating. These are the most random recommendations <laughs> ever. So random. But, you can tell we've had a busy week. But also, I, I've been having trouble sleeping... And I've found that when I, like, cannot sleep and it's, like, 2.30 in the morning and I'm going, like, ugh, and I'm just, like, lying in bed, I listen to this guided meditation. I've Ooh. never made it to the end of it. Wow. It's just him saying, like, and now you picture a red – I don't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> I don't puts you to sleep. I don't actually do the meditation. I randomly found this because whenever I stay at my in-laws' house, their guest bed is so comfortable – that I can't sleep? I realize that doesn't make sense. I lie down in the bed and I'm like, You just want to oh, be awake and enjoying it. This is so nice. But then it's like four in the morning and I'm like, <laughs> kill me. This is a nightmare. And I was just looking for something to like relax. Found this video on YouTube. And then it put me right to sleep like a baby. Nice. So say the name of it again. Yeah, it's Quartz Crystal Bowl Meditation. Which I think if you just put that in, it'll probably come up. It's with Mel Zabel. The video is uploaded by someone named Alan Gosh. I don't know. <laughs> okay. It's dated August 31, 2014. I, I, I just want to share that Is tip. it copyrighted? Couldn't it be our new theme music? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just thought we I should would contact Mel share Zabel. that with people who also might be having trouble sleeping in these times that, according to the Church of Satan, are not the apocalypse. But, I mean, it's a... We all have been there. You know, I'm you're gonna, laying awake at night. Yeah. Your mind is racing. You need something just to take... To focus I on feel like this gives bed. me like a good quality of sleep, if that makes sense. Mm, I'm gonna try it. Yeah. So that's my totally random recommendation. Those for this are week. our I totally w- random recommendations. I want to share 
that tip in case it helps anyone else sleep. That's really generous of you. Well, I don't need to keep Malzabelle all for myself. <laughs> <laughs> also, Samantha, I have a surprise for you. A surprise? Yes. What is it? I had to hide it, so hold on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. I'm going to. Liz is leaving the room. I'm assuming she's going to come back. It must be big. She's going into her creepy basement. Liz has a a basement that you get murdered in. (laughs) What is this? Is this for our photo shoot? This is a giant alien, inflatable alien. It's the size of Liz almost. I'm going to take a photo. You got to hold it up. I'm going to put this on our Instagram story so you guys can see it. See it live. Hold on. Oh, my God. That thing is ridiculous. Where did you get this? What? I can't even. It's, this, it looks like this came straight out of Roswell. Oh, my God. So I, I've, I ordered Samantha and I a giant inflatable alien, partly just because I wanted to. But well, also, who doesn't? But also, we're having some photos taken today. I call him Robbie Stacky, <laughs> <laughs> our inflatable alien friend. Uh, I've been Robbie Stacky. <laughs> I've been very excited to <laughs> to unveil him. To you. <laughs> he is almost as tall as me. Oh, uh, if you if you also would like a giant inflatable alien, you can find them on eBay. Okay, that's where you got me, babe. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Robbie. <laughs> that, that's today's that's surprise. That's amazing. I'm assuming you made Mac blow that up. Uh, yeah, he did a lot of it. Because <laughs> I was really bad at it. And I thought we had a pump that would work, but the, like, nozzle thing didn't fit. So we were sitting here last night watching Mindhunter blowing up this giant <laughs> alien. <laughs> like you do. Like you do. Oh my god! Uh, I think that's, that's our show. That's amazing. What do we have? Anything else we even need to say? Listen. I mean, I, I can't even think at this. Oh, I want to say hi to Calvin, listener Calvin, because Calvin? he called us one of his favorite podcasts on Twitter, oh. and I just thought that was really nice. So that's, hi, hi Calvin, hi Calvin. I Since was gonna. We have for the first time in history, I think, negative Twitter followers. I think somehow we have negative. What does that mean? No, we don't. Oh, we, we just like, have very few. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I don't do Twitter, you guys. I have a Twitter account. I haven't tweeted anything in ages. But, um, so we appreciate that, Calvin. Thank you. I wanted to read one or two iTunes reviews. Listen, you guys, go on iTunes, and if you give us five out of five Robert Stacks, I'll I'll read a review. This one, Polly Wogged, says, awesome and hilarious. Can't wait for the next episode. Thanks, Polly Wogged. That is not my mom, guys, so that's pretty nice. It for sure was not. <laughs> I don't think my mom knows how to leave a review on iTunes. Diet Soda says, definitely a podcast you should check out. These women do a great job in giving interesting information in a fun way. I feel like I'm having a conversation with a couple of friends. You don't even need to have seen Unsolved Mysteries to enjoy the episodes. Liz and Samantha give you everything you need to know in the episode to be able to follow along. Happy to have found a great new podcast. Thanks, Diet Soda. That sounds like something we would make a publicist write for us. 
That's so nice and inviting. It's like you don't even have to watch on Solve Mysteries. Thoughtful, like people put they a really lot of thought really into nice. these reviews, and yes. I really appreciate them. I love that so many people put as like the tagline of their review: five out of five Roberts." It warms my heart every time. There's so many. I'll screenshot them and send them to Samantha. Like this another one? five out of five Robert Stacks came in. Wheezy Pete says, "I give it five Robert Stacks. I love Unsolved Mysteries. Yes. This podcast is funny and entertaining." Oh Thanks, my God. Wheezy Pete. This person who is definitely a local listener, listener, it's Pie Cat Dog, says entertaining is all get out, which is such a Minnesota <laughs> phrase. Such a we Minnesota. are entertaining is all get out. <laughs> so thank you guys for to everyone yeah, who's reviewed us on iTunes. So we nice. really appreciate it. We've gotten so many good reviews. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Perhaps It's You. You can email us at Perhaps It's You Podcast at gmail.com. People have still been sending in sco- yes, spooky we're, stories. We're we still really collecting those. It. If we get more, which we'll, we have gotten a few. We'll put together another episode of them or something. We might do like a bonus episode. So yeah. listen, it doesn't have to be a spooky story. You could send us in like. Your jury your, duty story. Your family lore. Yeah. Like the mystery that captivated your town. It really, anything unsolved mysteries adjacent will qualify. Did you, the time your uncle saw a UFO. Yes. Please, please tell us about send that. Send us those stories and we will read them in maybe like a bonus episode or something. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds fun. But that's all we have for you this week. Thanks for listening. All right. Bye, five listeners. Go, Go solve out. some mysteries. Solve some mysteries. Bye. Bye. Bye.